Hey, this is Billy West, and you're listening to Too Much Scrolling. You're one stop for this sort of thing. I'll see you in the future. Greetings from the year 3000. It still sucks. I'm Steve Voter. I'm Chip Hassan-Flow. And I'm Pam Fedor. And we're just a couple of people sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. Pam is here. It's the end of the month. Gosh, Pam, I tell you, last time you were on the show was like six years ago. This month has been so long. I completely agree with you. It did feel like I, I think I tried to get in touch with you guys last week and say, are we recording now? And you were like, no, <laughs> wait, it, it does feel like it's been a long time. How are you guys? It's so good. Everything is so fine. Summer is here. I am just hanging out and being a part of, of wonderful societies and cultures and, and having a lot of fun. How about you, Chip? The beach is near, Steve. The yeah. beach is near. And, you know, that means summertime and those weekend trips to the beach. Oh, yes. Pam, are you on your summer schedule yet? Uh, not quite. Almost there. Okay. You'll get there. It's lovely. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Boy, oh boy, Chip, Star Wars, Chip, Star Wars. Well, from a certain point of view, Steve, this week is very, very strong with the Force. The new Obi-Wan Kenobi series has finally hit Disney+, Plus, and boy, oh boy, I am not going to give away any spoilers on this, but they surprised the heck out of me with what story they were going to tell here. They surprised you? Yes, I did not expect the things that happened in Obi-Wan Kenobi episodes one and two to happen. I thought we were going to get a guy in a desert watching Luke Skywalker grow up and that is not the story that they're telling in Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, he was on a desert planet, Steve. For That's like half of the first episode. And then he dug up his lightsaber and left the planet. The question is going to be, will this story kind of change A New Hope? The, the original Star Wars film. Again, I'm not. I'm trying very hard not to get into spoilers here. There but... really isn't that much to spoil, Steve. I mean, you mm. you you see Obi Wan. He's kind of living in the desert, trying to be just. He's he has become Ben, mm -hmm. and and then you know he's called to adventure is basically what it is. But there's really we've gotten two episodes of is it six? Yes, six episodes. So we're, you know, a third of the way through, and um, we just have started the adventure. The, the question is, is, you know, does this change ultimately the, the Star Wars story? But, you know, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Uh, what, what we do know is that Darth Vader is out there hunting Jedi. The Inquisitors sent by Darth Vader out there hunting Jedi was something I was expecting from the stories that were told of this time. From a long, previous, long time ago in, in a galaxy, galaxy far, far, far away. away. Yes. Possibly. <laughs> I knew about the Inquisitors. I knew that they would be hunting the Jedi. I knew that there would be scattered Jedi here and there. Uh, I was a little bit surprised to see the one Jedi that did show up other than Obi-Wan in this episode and his origin story. But I was super surprised at some of those things that you're talking about that maybe might change the story from 45 years ago. The episode four might have a different meaning. Some of the words might mean different things with this new action. Well, Ewan McGregor certainly owns this character. And I, I don't know if you saw this. He's the producer of this series. Yes, he is definitely financially and emotionally embedded in this story. This is the story of Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. And the second thing I wanted to mention was, did you catch that his daughter 
was also in this this series in the second episode. No, she was the spy seller. Interesting. Yeah, and the little kid that is um, the sidekick, you know, short round. <laughs> yes, she is really good at her character. So this is, I, I will go ahead and say this. This is there's some, some Disney scenes to this. Mm-hmm. This is made for television. It's not too scary. My question is, when the Inquisitors show up, they're not as as menacing as Darth Vader was in Episode Four. Absolutely. But then again, I'm not a child, so I don't know. I think that this is very well written for all of the generations of Star Wars fans for the last 45 years. The empowerment of children in this story, the the one young lady that you're speaking of that I'm not going to name, she definitely is empowered in who she is. And I wouldn't expect anything different from that character. She has something special to which Obi-Wan Kenobi says, how old are you? He knows fully well how old she is, and she tells him how old she is, and he goes, wow, you seem like you're a lot older. And I just fell in love with the idea of the adventures that those two unnamed characters will get into later. Boy, do I want to do a special where we can just spoil all of this stuff. Well, I I don't think that there, if you look at the credits, you, you know what's going to happen. Uh, on some level. Um, I also want to mention that Flea, did you catch that Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers was in there? Yes, I most certainly did. And all I could think of was his role in Back to the Future. And I just wanted him to call somebody a chicken. And yes, Flea is (laughs) the most unlikely good actor. (laughs) All right. All right, Steve, that was it. Now we've got four more episodes that are going to be released one a week weekly. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, certainly not, not, not on the uh, Netflix level. But did you watch this before you watched Stranger Things? Yes, I did. Okay. Yes. So we'll talk about Stranger Things next week because we're going to try to get through it. Excellent. I also caught a couple of other shows and movies this week because it's summertime and the living is easy. I watched Moonshot. This is a very independent film on HBO Max. It's a romantic comedy uh, following two college students who join forces to get to Mars. And it's features uh all of the tropes of romantic comedy plus some pretty good fun sci-fi this is a fun silly kind of story really up my alley it features cole sprouse who you might remember as the kid from big daddy the movie from 1999 and lana condor who played jubilee in the x-men apocalypse in 2016 two kids falling in love finding a way to get to Mars, uh, stowing away uh, on a ship. It's very silly, very fun sci-fi. Called Moonshot, but mm-hmm. going to Mars. Isn't that funny? That's <laughs> <laughs> part of the comedy. Trust me. Going to the moon certainly isn't you know, as ambitious as going to Mars. Trust me, it's part of the comedy. Very silly. Not, nothing, not a great movie by any stretch, but just a fun thing to watch on HBO. Steve, you got to see a documentary this week that I have on my list. I really highly suggest everybody sit down and watch George Carlin's American Dream. This is a two-part documentary directed by Judd Apatow. Uh, It is... Do you have seven words to describe it? (laughs) (laughs) Focus on George Carlin's career and those seven words and how much he was able to bring to the consciousness of America what it is we do. That idea of the American dream to point out some of the ridiculous ideas embedded in that American dream. This is a really good documentary a really good biography i would have made a much worse biography because the part that judd apatow really hit hard was some of the things that george carlin did and said that were maybe off topic off kilter off color even that the things that george carlin had to say at the end of his career maybe he wasn't the same guy he was at the beginning. Definitely. He wasn't the same guy. And, well, they were. and, and he, 
had some things to say that maybe maybe weren't true but they were his genuine feelings this is a very dark view of a life i love really? yeah it re, it there's there's a lot of stuff that happened in george carlin's life that uh judd apatow was brutally honest about and a lot of darkness I, I would make I would make such a happy ending. I would take this story of this man who I admire and I would put the happy parts at the end and, and intersperse the dark parts. Uh, Judd Apatow went the other way and, and it, it really is emotional, uh, this roller coaster of a life. Did you see the hall um, on Netflix where they had the induction to the new comedy Hall of Fame? No. So the hall, it, it, it has, uh, Dave Chappelle's one of the um, people that introduces, um, uh, John Mulaney is a person that introduces um, Chelsea Handler. Okay. Uh, and I'm trying to think of who the other person is. Anyway, the hall, the four people they inducted, Robin Williams was one, Joan Rivers, George Carlin, and Richard Pryor. Okay. Richard Pryor and George Carlin both started out very similarly, mm -hmm. where middle America, they're dressed in suits, they're telling stories like um, maybe Bob Newhart would have uh, told jokes yes. at the time. That 1950s they, comedy stylings, absolutely. Well, I would say 1960s too. And they both took a break and they kind of found themselves and came back as certainly very different characters and they were able to become when i say authentic to a voice certainly much more challenging to the norms very very similar to the united states at that time where you come back from world war ii and you're so busy trying to uh, assimilate get the white picket fence with the car with the uh, refrigerator and the air conditioner and you know, the 60s, late 60s and 70s were the rebellion of that, where uh, things kind of took place. Very similar to like this new generation that we have right now, uh, Gen Z, who's coming in and they're basically tearing down anything that they feel that uh, was kind of created and maybe they don't like how it was created or Maybe they don't like uh, how things are, have been done. There could be a very, uh, a new way of looking at things. So my feeling is, and I haven't seen this, this um, documentary, but I mean, it sounds like it's addressing George Carlin's um, growth from this one type of person to this new type of person. And then, you know, dealing with the demons of his, his life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, having the heart attacks and having, um, uh, was it drug abuse and yes. stuff like that? So, mm -hmm. Very much. much. It's it's a very dark documentary. I would not write a dark documentary. I would not write a dark biography. I would be dishonest about all of those things. And Judd Apatow was certainly honest about George Carlin's life. All right, Steve, that wasn't the only thing you got to watch this week. Let's go to something really kind of silly and fun. Thank goodness there was a new episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 this week. They riffed the movie Munchie from 1992. You know, that movie with Lonnie Anderson, Artie Johnson, Dom DeLuise, Jennifer Love Hewitt, and friend of the show, Peter Spellos. Yeah, I didn't see this one either. I never watched it. It is definitely a, uh, hey, Gremlins was fun. Let's make a puppet movie with a kid running around, and it'll be very silly. It is super silly. Dom DeLuise is the voice of the, the munchie, and it is it doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, this is even before there were video uh, stores. So this wasn't direct-to-video. They made this for major was, release you are right this is made for a movie theater and i can't imagine going to a movie theater and watching this movie <laughs> steve let's bring some tears to your eyes real quick oh i everybody that follows me on social media knows that this week time traveler's wife episode two uh struck me in a way that that i couldn't even imagine that this show was going to do i love the time traveler's life story so much and i was so afraid of what stephen moffat was going to do with this story and he did exactly what i thought he was going to do he changed the story of the time traveler's wife in episode two 
And boy, is it wonderful. He made this story even more emotional than Audrey Niffenegger's original. And I, I, I can never, I can never live that down. This story is so good is my favorite story of all time. And Stephen Moffat made it better somehow in episode two. I suggest highly go to HBO, pay your money to HBO, watch The Time Traveler's Wife. Did we review this last week? We did. We, said, we talked about episode one last week and and, mm-hmm. and uh, episode one was fine. Episode one stayed on track. Episode well, two uh, made a new track. So this is being released weekly. Once again, this is six episodes? uh this is a six episode series yes sir so so once again they've shortened from eight to six Uh which works real well i I think this is an excellent series i i highly recommend it pam i think you should pay your 15 dollars to hbo to watch this because i think you would love it especially after we talked to audrey herself back in november of 2020 you know like 17 years ago Right. <laughs> and I always loved this. I love this novel long before I met you guys. And so I will definitely enjoy watching this adaptation. Well, when I went back in time, um, Pam, and I, I met you as this naked guy uh, in a field. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they, in, in episode two, they address those issues that you had with the story chip, that idea of this young, young girl meeting this man. They address that head on in episode two, and boy, yes. they do it well. So I got it really sort of out of the blue email this week. I shouldn't say email, a little text this week that basically a friend of mine from a long, long time ago, she said, listen, I had this dream that last night that... Um, you know, we were on like this vacation type thing and, you know, a whole bunch of things happened. And so my response was, of course, yeah, you were there too. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Speaking of time travel, Pam has been time traveling her way through Grey's Anatomy. You finished season 17, the 2020 season this week. The COVID season. Oh. (laughs) So, So actually, I have to say, you know I'm not recommending Grey's Anatomy. It's like a crazy soap opera medical drama. Although I have watched all 17 seasons with my 11-year-old and it's been a lot of fun. But I actually think season 17 is kind of amazing. The COVID season does a lot of really important cultural critique. So, you know, it has all the overblown melodrama that you expect from this kind of show, but it's really smart too. And I have to say, it was some of the some of the episodes were really hard to watch because it reminds you how scared we were for all of 2020. And you know, I think it's it's easy even just a couple of years later to feel like, oh yeah, that was so long ago, but but it wasn't. And you know, it really talks about issues of inequity and what it was like in hospitals in that first year of the pandemic. So it's it's kind of amazing. Well, if you like that, I, I'm sure you listened last week, and you know there's a great film out with Sir Anthony Hopkins that uh, was <laughs> that was is, he, he's being sarcastic about most of those <laughs> words, Pam. There's, there's a, I couldn't tell. <laughs> there's a filmed on Zoom movie that they made a movie, and Sir Anthony Hopkins somehow got roped into being one of the faces on zoom in this movie i can't imagine that's a good movie that's so they can say that there was anthony hopkins right. <laughs> sir anthony hopkins sir anthony hopkins. <laughs> hey, give him a title like like uh, sir walter raleigh steve in camp sir walter raleigh <laughs> named Opening. after a certain city that we know sir arthur conan doyle <laughs> Opening this week, there's some there's some junk movies being thrown out there for summertime. The first one's called Grace and Grit. This is another one of those movies from 2021 that has been sitting on the shelf. We're ready for a story of courage, transcendence, and eternal love as chronicled in the globally acclaimed book Grace and Grit. Steve, I had to release it some week. This is the week. <laughs> Congratulations. There's another 2021 title, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Uh, This is another investigative murder story linked to demonic possession. There you go. It's so many conjurings that they even forget to number them anymore, Steve. (laughs) 
there's a movie called watcher not the watcher that's different this is watcher this is a serial killer stalking the city and a young actress who just moved into town notices a mysterious stranger watching her from across the street that mysterious stranger played by burn gorham who is owen from torchwood that's the only thing i need to know well it looks like that there's a lot of movies from last week that we should watch steve Yes, uh, there's, a, there's a long list from last week. Those of you who didn't get through last week's list, yes, that's uh, go, go back a week. Time travel. Steve, there is hope for you, though. Yes, the Orville is finally returning to television screens this week. The last episode, season two, was April 25th. 2019 three years have passed since we have had the orville on tv the new season is subtitled new horizons and it is exclusive to hulu the first two seasons were broadcast on fox and uh, seth mcfarlane uh, has said very adamantly this week that he does not like fox he does not want to have his art shown on that channel so he's happy that they're on hulu we'll see what the ratings say steve the money says where they will go and somehow hulu put the money up to put this on well remember hulu is fox and nbc so uh and disney so so they it's, have it's, it's disney yeah they have they have money <laughs> Norm MacDonald, remember, passed away during the last three years of not being a part of the Orville. So I am very curious to see what they will do with his character on well, this TV show. Disney owns Star Wars, Steve. He could come back as a force ghost. Force blob. A force blob. I, I would pay money for the force blob, Norm MacDonald, to show up in this program for sure. There's a new. Steve, Steve is there a movie that's like Hoosiers coming out? Hoosiers 2021 is coming to Paramount Plus. It's called Under the Stadium Lights. It features Lawrence Fishburne and a high school football team getting uh, some some knowledge. Well, Steve, you're talking about high school football and Texas, kind of like Hoosiers. Wait, they have football in Texas? Uh, I think they do. Guess what? <laughs> it looks like this was originally named Brothers Keeper. They changed the name. They didn't even change the uh, the sentence in IMDb uh, about this. But this has Lawrence Fishburne. I guess he takes the red pill. And they are going to go and win a high school football championship. And we're going to go on, along for the journey. There you go. Book it. 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 Brings you to our book and our book of the week. The reason Pam is here, as always, is our wonderful book club. And we're so happy to have you here to discuss a book that you brought to us this month. It's called In the Woods by Tana French. It was published in 2018. Is Bernadette Peters uh, in this? No, that's Into the Woods. That's Into the Woods. That's a different story completely. And then there are many books called In the Dark. It's a very, the title is not, is the title isn't very forgettable. But I'm so curious um, what you guys thought of this book. I, we, were, we were looking for a change of pace from sci-fi. So I thought, let's go to some detective fiction, as yep. I often do. So talk to me. What did you guys think? There's no doubt that this is a departure from the books that we have been reading. We, we read through so many detective novels. We read through all of Arthur Conan Doyle's work with Sherlock Holmes, and we studied that detective structure with you as our professor, and this, this is definitely falling into that structure. Did you find that it was running into like that type of short story structure, Steve? There are vignettes to this story because of the timeliness of it. And we'll get to the characterizations as to how this author puts together time, which was very interesting. Yeah, I thought you might like that, Steve. But let me ask, like, so having read all 60 of the Sherlock Holmes stories, the four novels and 56 stories, um, I know you guys don't read detective fiction all the time the way I do, but what did you think of this one? My favorite choice 
in this was how the main character is presented as the detective, a very, very standard detective novel where we are with the investigator seeing it through his eyes, but making him the victim of a previous crime in the same place gives him an enormous amount of insight. The intriguing secret that the reader knows that this person is the victim of a previous case and, and keeping that secret and holding information back from this investigation. I thought that that was brilliant character development. Yeah, I really like that element too. And of course, this is set in Ireland. And I think we often in America and Canada, we have like a romanticized impression of Ireland. And I thought this was really interesting that the woods are kind of a character, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the setting is almost a character because we have our main detective, uh, Rob Ryan, who was Adam Ryan as a child he and his two friends. So we've got these two triangles, right? With Rob and his two friends when they were 12 years old and the two friends are gone and no one knows where they went. And little Rob has no memories from before 12 years old. And he was just found in the woods, um, catatonic. And now 20 years later, he's going back to the same woods where another child is found, but this time murdered. Um, and placed out on this sacrificial altar. So, I mean, the woods themselves feel almost supernatural, even though this is a detective story. And the way that the author gives us the description of all of this setting is wonderful. I I was really enjoying the way that she described the setting, the woods themselves, all of the colors. I I, I figured this <laughs> I out. I thought of you, Steve, because of the colors. I thought, oh, Steve will like these colors. <laughs> we figured this out. Those of you who haven't been with us for the last two years, we figured this out early in the pandemic. Steve likes when authors write the names of colors in their descriptions of scenery. And this author does it really well. There's so many great colors. And I really understand the description. But I actually thought even more than that, that she goes through all of your senses. And if you guys don't mind, I'll just read the first paragraph. Um, is Think about all the senses. And she speaks to you, the reader. Picture a summer stolen whole from some coming-of-age film set in small-town 1950s. This is none of Ireland's subtle seasons mixed for a connoisseur's palette. Watercolor nuances within a pinch-sized range of cloud and soft rain. This is summer full-throated and extravagant in a hot, pure, silkscreen blue. This summer explodes on your tongue, tasting of chewed blades of long grass, your own clean sweat, Marie biscuits with butter squirting through the holes and shaken bottles of red lemonade picnicked in tree houses. So think about how she's got, what it smells like, what it tastes like, what colors are there, the temperature, the heat. And it's all you, the reader, like picture yourself there and the things that you've seen on movie screens. So I feel like, I mean, the level of detail of description her use of different sensory input is pretty impressive. I was totally impressed with with that from the beginning. That's amazing that she sets the scene so well and keeps the reader, again, in the shoes of the main character. We are there with this man going through this and, and understanding why he's keeping the secrets that he's keeping and how he's doing the investigation. Uh, I was I was a little worried about the uh, the the investigation itself, the very brutal murder of a child. I am always affected when I read stories about brutality against children, and this was very very dark. But I I've I've read worse. There there's certainly worse, but there there were moments in this one. And I think she avoids any gratuitous, right? I mean, she tells you, of course, the crime is against children, right? But she doesn't, I have read scenes that make me very uncomfortable in the genre of crime and detective fiction. 
here, I think she, she does what she can to not make it gratuitous. I agree. I, I, I did. But the topic is what it is. I know. The topic is what it is. Yeah. And that bothered me, but she gave it to me the way that I needed it. And so I, I admire that fortitude to be able to show and tell these brutal things without being gratuitous. That's, that's a, a thin line to walk. Well, especially this week. I mean, I particularly know. as we, we uh, as reality kind of breaks into yeah, a book book club uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. It certainly was on my mind reading this. Was the brutality right. of reality and my escapist knowledge of getting into a book? And here we have a child in a crime, and uh, it's a dark world. You know, I think that she touches on a lot of topics even beyond the really obvious connections that we're all making, just in terms of the place of, you know, one of the big conflicts in this novel is that there's an archeological dig and a motorway coming through a, a, um, a freeway that's being built. And so this notion of like, how do we honor the past, right? What is the relationship between the past and the present and the future? Should we be building more highways that have us out there driving our cars that are, that are fueled by fossil fuels that are, you know, there's a lot going on in terms of the sort of a critique of where we are as a society, not only in the amount of violence that we accept, but also the violence that we do to the world. And as a theme, she also adds memory to that conversation. (laughs) And how does the memory of this young boy who who lost the memory of what happened that fateful night, how does that memory uh, affect him 20 years later as the investigator? Uh, Yes, there's there's some great conversation here about the past and as a result, the future of all of this. And I kind of thought, Steve, I know as a lover of time travel and questions of memory and perception, that this might be the kind of detective story that you would perhaps kind of get into because it has the same themes, just in a very different genre. Absolutely. I I appreciate this book and you bringing it to us because this is not a book that I would have picked up. There's no way that this is my genre (laughs) of book. And that's what this book club does is it allows me to see stories that I wouldn't see because you bring us something, Chip brings us something. And then I, you know, bring this back to my genre. (laughs) (laughs) Which is our genre too, of course. It's like time travel. I mean, it just keeps coming coming back to it over and over and over. It is amazing that this is not a time travel story, but the author is giving us those themes of memory and past and mixing together these investigations of 20 years ago and current in a way that it feels like it has those same beats. And I feel like we can't really talk about this novel without spoiling it. <laughs> is that is that kind of I I absolutely yeah, right? agree. I think I think anybody that wants to read this story <laughs> spoiler free should stop listening now. Uh, th- at this point, the spoiler horn goes off, and we are going to spoil this story because <laughs> I, I think that it's important uh, enough to to show what it's really doing, and we can't tiptoe around it. So. the thing this is a book that's marketed as detective fiction but of course by really about 2010 we no longer separate detective fiction and crime fiction so now they're like detective and crime fiction dcf happening all at once and this certainly you know with all of those sherlock holmes stories we got an answer right so, so can, I, mm-hmm. can i answer ask a question about that of course. what would be the difference between crime fiction and detective fiction? Well, in the 20th century, they were really quite separate because crime fiction, those were stories where you saw the criminal's perspective and you were kind of with the criminal hoping that they would get away with it, right? And you've seen those, like the heist, all those heist films, those are like crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in crime fiction though, sometimes it got really dark and you didn't always get an answer. Whereas up until around the year 2000, if you're reading a detective story with a few notable exceptions, you would get the answer. 
right? So that's the, that's the sort of contract between the writer and the reader. I'm going to give you a mystery. I'll give you lots of red herrings. You'll try to solve it. I'll try to solve it. And then at the end, I'll tell you the answer. But really, Interesting. In mystery, but, we don't always get the answer. But, all right. So is that a, has society kind of matured from that? From, from this part where, you know, there is a puzzle to figure out to where we're dealing with, you know, it's not the black and the white world anymore. It's a very gray world. Absolutely, Chip. Exactly. And that's why I love studying detective fiction, because I think it kind of tracks and registers the society, our society's relationship to truth. Interesting. Like, can we know? Can we know everything? In the 19th century, and you know this from reading 19th century sci-fi, Steve, for sure, like, People had so much optimism. We're going to be able to know everything. We're well on our way. And then, I mean, you know, we can mark different places, but World War II is often seen as a place where people start to think, do we want to know everything? (laughs) Like, we could kill ourselves if we know everything. And then certainly by the 21st century, we don't have that feeling that there is one truth that we can all know and agree upon. And I think really early in this novel, uh, Rob says, because he's a first-person narrator, what I warn you to remember is that I am a detective. Our relationship with truth is fundamental but cracked, refracting confusingly like fragmented glass. And I'm like, whoa, that is the postmodern detective novel. Like, I love that the narrator just puts it right out there, like tells you right from the start, here's a mystery, I'm a detective, good detective, working on a good, good squad. You know, we're working really hard doing all the stuff. We might never know. Our relationship with truth is fundamental, but cracked. Hmm. That is very 21st century for sure. Totally. Now, as you guys know, I'm currently writing a book about Canadian crime fiction. And one of my favorite Canadian artists. Probably, probably the nicest book ever. <laughs> well, it's crime fiction, my friend. Even Canadian. The nicest criminals crime out there. Nice. <laughs> but one of my favorite songwriters and poets is Leonard Cohen. And he has this great song, Anthem. It's from the 1990s, where the, the chorus is, um, there is a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. And that's the epigraph to my book, because I think that is kind of where we are with crime fiction in the 21st century. That's really good, by the way. Like that, isn't it? I mean, that song is amazing, but it actually shows up. It shows up in a Louise Penny novel. It shows up in an episode of Fringe, which is a sci-fi detective series filmed in Vancouver. That's kind of great. But that idea that we used to think we could know everything and nobody believes that anymore, or, or even that we should, right? And one of my favorite parts about this writing is it takes that and gives us the perspective of this particular investigator. This might be one of the best views that I've ever read into the thinking of how a detective works and writing about their personal views on a case like this. I always wonder, I have asked law enforcement before, do detectives ever sleep? How how can they separate the crime from their their personal sense of safety and and this investigator talks about that because he has such a personal connection here he talks about not being able to sleep that he needs to solve this case and because he has this missing 12 years of memory right from his own childhood trauma and he has no idea what happened to his friends Mm -hmm. Now, it's so interesting that you've got these two triangular relationships, because when he was a boy, Adam, which was his name, and Peter and the girl, Jamie, the three of them were always together and they were so close. And, you know, there's this sort of the intimacy of that relationship um, and that notion that like as kids, they believe that they're going to be together forever. Right. And I see this in my own kids at this age who are picturing that they're going to go to college and live with their friends from fifth grade. And mm-hmm. no, <laughs> that, that's probably 
not going to be the case, right? Just watching the eighth graders sobbing and crying yes. and hugging at the end of the school year. Eighth grade is, is this moment that they're standing on a precipice and they don't know if they're going to see each other ever again, even though they live in the same block. It's, it's, uh, it's something. Well, I hope they stay cool. <laughs> but I think that like with, but Ryan's experience of having his two friends be part of this crime that never gets solved in the book, which is like my favorite part of this book. Cause didn't you think you were going to find out what happened to Jamie and Peter? The there entire- were so many red herrings. Of course you're going to find out and you never find out, but in a way, isn't that what kind of happens with our childhood friendships and with the way that those relationships felt so impenetrable and now we maybe don't even, you know, we might have like those Facebook connection or whatever, you know, and then you get that mirrored in the relationship. So we've got these two partners. So now Adam, who's now become Rob Ryan and his best friend and partner, Cassie. And he talks about what it is like your detective partner, like what that means. But the whole time you, you feel like it's, this is pretty classic detective fiction. You've got a male and female detective partnered together. Oh, what is going to happen, my friends? The X-Files was actually <laughs> brought up in the text. She actually mentions the X-Files. And the whole time I was thinking, <laughs> yes, exactly. I know this relationship. I know how this is going to work. And when when Rob can't sleep, he's he crashes on Cassie's couch, right? Like she's his place of safety. Mm-hmm. Also have this third detective, Sam, who then creates the triangle of his childhood. And like Sam is so not part of their friendship of the intimacy between Cassie and Rob until they do the unforgivable and actually sleep together. And that's, <gasps> and I mean, how did you? Bum, 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 bum. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Obviously I've read this book before. So on the reread, of course, I knew what was going to happen, but. Did you anticipate what would happen after they slept together? Steve, you're nodding. <laughs> yes, I, I I absolutely understood how that intimacy of that relationship in partnership is is not it, it can't exist after a change in that intimacy happens. I, I kept thinking about the movie When Harry Met Sally with uh, Billy Crystal explaining that men and women can't be friends. It's not possible that, that it shatters that change in intimacy shatters that friendship. It can't be put back together. And yeah, I was, I was sad for that relationship, the way that it played out, but I, I thought it was inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is your, I'm, I'm looking at this going, really? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. What are you thinking, Jim? People can be friends. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think that's a, a very old-fashioned way of looking at things. Here in modern society, <laughs> we people can be friends. I mean, we, I have friends that are old people I was intimate with. Many, many people. No, I'm teasing. But yeah, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I've got friends, and oh, an old girlfriend calls you and says, "I need some help doing something." Yeah, no one thinks twice about it. You, you, you know, you know them. They're looking, they're, so you, you know, sleeping with someone doesn't mean that somehow you've shattered the friendship. Hmm. And I actually, I agree with both of you. And, and this, so on a personal level, I totally agree with Chet. <laughs> but, but for this novel, I think that what happens between Cassie and Rob is all about Rob's trauma. Like he can just not be close to another person because he doesn't have access to the first 12 years of his own life. So he doesn't know who he is. So he can only, there's a limit to how close Rob can be with someone. And I think it's actually kind of awesome that at the end, he starts dating Sophie, the the cute forensic specialist. And she says to him, they, they, you know, they date briefly and he thinks it's okay, but she says, oh, um, she breaks up with them after, after a few weeks. And she says, I actually know the difference between guys who are 
dateable and not dateable. And unfortunately, you're you're just not dateable. So cheers. You should date younger women because they won't be able to tell. And I love that because it's so sad. Like it's funny, but it's also so sad because Rob is a completely traumatized character. Mm-hmm. Missing this part of himself that you need to have true intimacy with another person. He doesn't know who he is and he never will. And that's been taken from him. It's not that he lost himself. It was taken and will never know by whom or how. And, and I kept waiting for that in the story. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop the whole time. Like the, the author is giving us red herrings all over the place about this story. The narrator gives us some mysterious clues and, and I, I keep waiting that, is there something supernatural going to happen? I was waiting. Nope. It was all, <laughs> all uh, inexplicable. It just happened. And, and that's all we get as readers. And I thought, Steve, you would love that moment when Rob goes into the woods. And, you know, it's so funny because I feel like there is something almost supernatural about this story. But it's not really supernatural. But like when Rob goes into the woods by himself at night, he is able to tap into a little bit of his childhood memories, which are completely gone. So, I mean, obviously, from a psychological perspective, we say they're repressed. But and, you know, returning to the scene helps him unlock them or whatever. But it feels almost supernatural. And he captures the child's perspective. And I thought, oh, Steve will like this when he says, oh, as a detective, I forgot what it's like to be a child. Mm-hmm. And he thinks about how, as children, he and Jamie and Peter had planned to just live in the woods for two weeks and no one would find them. And then Jamie wouldn't have to go away to boarding school. And so, like, you can picture that so easily, right? As 12-year-olds, you think, oh, yeah, we could do that. But, of course, like, as a missing child, they comb the woods completely right (laughs) there's no way they could have hidden in the woods for more than 24 or 48 hours tops Mm -hmm. chance but as a kid you don't know what a big deal you are what a big deal it would be if you disappeared you don't think about that and some of the other detective strategies that are used in here, we, we talked a little bit about profiling and the idea of using psychology. Again, something that we saw starting with Arthur Conan Doyle, that idea mm-hmm. of identifying the type of person who would do such a crime and using that knowledge to find the criminal. And Cassie here is great. She's a, you know, she did her psychology degree, but then didn't finish it because she got involved with the psychopath, but that gave her different insights that are very helpful here. And um, I don't think we necessarily need to ruin or to spoil rather. I don't think we necessarily need to spoil the psychopath part of this. Okay. If you say so, Pam. Unless you think so. I think that we already called off spoilers and everybody was still sitting around. The psychopathy analysis of this book is pretty amazing to find a person the character who is if you don't want to spoil it it's fine go for it no go for it rosalind is a psychopath she absolutely has had a mental break and she is absolutely operating on a different level and psychopathy is so well put together in this story Yeah, it really is. And, you know, there's the psychopath test, right, that they give people. Um, And I remember one of my favorite marketplace, this is an NPR podcast, one of my favorite marketplace episodes ever was when all the care, all the, the podcasters from marketplace money, they actually took the psychopath test and they got their score. And from the beginning, it was like, who's going to score the highest on the psychopath test? Because, you know, there there's data that like you know, CEOs score higher than average humans or whatever. And everyone took the test and it was a big reveal. Every single person scored zero. Mm. Yeah, it's like about this. It's, it's very like, and to me, I thought that Tana French really captured that too. Like a psychopath is very, very, very different <laughs> than most of us. 
right? Not just on a scale, like extremely different. And I, I had a discussion like that this week where people throw around medical terms Yes. Casually. <laughs> oh, and, he's such a narcissist. Sure. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's one thing if you're a doctor and you're using those terms, but for most people, they're using terms casually where they have sort of an idea, but not really clinically an idea. Mm-hmm. Just the word moron. That is a clinical term. That is not a term that you should be using casually, but it has come into the the normal speech, mostly through the Three Stooges, by the way. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, you, you have to be a little more cautious with some terms that you don't understand. She is definitely a psychopath, and I I really enjoyed the the clinical thinking through how we're going to manipulate her how we're going to get her to do what we're expecting her to do because she does things on this very specific mental level and i thought it was awesome that we were only i don't know maybe three quarters of the way through the novel when we solved the case and then the manipulation of the reader is awesome because then you're thinking okay so the current case is solved. So now we're going to find out what really happened 20 years ago, where there's still like 100 pages left. Okay, awesome. And then <laughs> don't find out. But instead we find out, oh, we know who actually killed this poor little girl, but we don't know why. Mm-hmm. Well, no why. And I love that, you know, the detectives actually have that conversation Like we've got all the forensic evidence. We've got his confession. He doesn't want to tell us the motive, but we don't really need to know. But damn it, they know. They know that he was led by a psychopath into the killing. He had no motive by himself. And so now they try and it looks like they've got the psychopath. We're fishing here, right? They got around, they've got the wire. And she has lied to Rob, told her, told Rob she's 18. And can't you just picture it? He looked really quickly at her birthday, did the math. Yep, she's 18. Her birthday's not till November. She hasn't actually turned 18. So everything they've got against her is indefensible. What what an interesting <sighs> final twist on all of this discussion. This is it's not a short book. This is a long book yeah. with a, a lot of things that happen a lot of red herrings and then all of a sudden at the end you get this this letdown that none of this is admissible in court and it's a double letdown because not only are you now putting not not the wrong guy i mean obviously damien did the killing but you're not able to actually prove what you know against the mastermind killer and you're not going to find out who committed the original crime <laughs> you're right it, it was <laughs> it was three quarters of the way through i actually wrote in the notes while i was reading that i i hit the climax of the story and i was completely right? wrong i thought that <laughs> moment that they found the murder weapon that was connected to the sexual assault that that was the moment i went okay done put us put a pin in it but yeah there was so much more story to come because of motive so much more disappointment for you but but i actually think it's both disappointing and exhilarating to find out that we're not going to know there's something really satisfying about it and unsatisfying at the same time a paradoxical moment and i love that you know that i was disappointed because i want to know the answer <laughs> I know to the darn do. crime and to not get it was a huge disappointment for me and that's so funny that you know me so well after these years of reading these books together <laughs> But but I love that you say that, Steve, because we do like reading together, watching together, consuming narrative together. It is a real intimacy. It is a way of knowing how we think, but also how our friends think. It's so important. It's what I love about my job. You know, what I love about book clubs. This this is what the book club is for. Well, and that there is the the argument that we've made many times where there's a reason to to watch the popular movie or, or read the popular book 
Because when you go to a place where you don't know people, it can become the discussion. Yes. It is the, the, the thing that's very common. And as society has matured, um, where we don't have three networks to do there, and, and the bookstores carry many genres and many books, those uh, connections are, are, are missing right mm-hmm. now. Um, because Nothing. Steve only watches time travel, for my example. <laughs> and, Mystery Science Theater. Well, there you go. And so what ends up happening is, you know, we all didn't watch the same sporting event or watch the same show last night or whatever that thing is. You know, there's a, there's a benefit to that, uh, that that you're gracefully giving to another person. But the other part that, you know, you can see how society is kind of split up much more uh fractionalized right now because of interest Mm -hmm. which is why we suggest a movie of the week and a book of the week so that we can start those conversations with one another for sure one thing that i really liked about this writing was all the different literary references that this author is able to bring in she talks about stephen king this is a very stephen king sort of story which once again is a red herring for something supernatural <laughs> that i thought was going to happen but but she did it on purpose this is kind of a, a cain and abel story it's very mm-hmm. interesting to think about that sibling rivalry and jealousy that leads to murder that that this is biblical absolutely she brings in brigadoon which is the scottish story of a uh hidden village in the woods and and the hidden society and and hiding uh from the rest of the world very interesting reference here in the woods cassie gets wired up and she recites an obscure poem called at the War Cemetery by you by Charles Cosley. Very interesting to slip in a very obscure poem when she's testing her mic. I also really loved that when Rob and Cassie were out drinking one night, he goes to pick up a girl and he claims to be a literature professor who studies Bram Stoker. And as they're flirting, he realizes I wish I knew a lot more about Bram Stoker. And so, but of course that reference to the writer of Dracula is yet another way that we bring in this sort of epistemological conflict between the rational and the supernatural, since that's at the heart of what literature professors study when they study Dracula. So that's another great- Blah, blah, blah. And don't say blah, blah, blah. <laughs> We couldn't do an episode without that. <laughs> you said Dracula. I blame you. <laughs> I also love how in this notion of literary references, she also does a wonderful job of capturing the aesthetic of detective work. And if I can just, I, I want to read just one more quote. This is my last one. But this is the final interrogation where we've got Cassie and Rob aren't even speaking to each other. They've completely ruined their relationship by sitting together. And now they are actually interviewing Damien. It was our last partnership. I wish I could show you how an interrogation can have its own beauty, shining and cruel as that of a bullfight. How in defiance of the crudest topic or the most moronic suspect, it keeps inviolate its own taut honed grace its own irresistible and blood-stirring rhythms, how the great pairs of detectives know each other's every thought as surely as lifelong ballet partners in a pas de deux. So there's several, several things to pick out of that, but the idea of the bullfight, which of course was Ernest Hemingway's very favorite metaphor of, of art, the idea of the ballet, the topic is so dark, you know, and it's so funny that that's so funny. She says moronic suspect after you just said, Steve, that that's, that word has a very specific clinical meaning. But, but this idea that even in a novel that's about something as dark as the criminal death of a child, you can find beauty and you can find meaning and you can find an aesthetic that really stays with you beyond the life of this novel, the 400 pages of the 20 hours. And I really 
thought that was the best part of this writing was that knowledge of how detectives' minds work. I I have read many detective novels, not as many as you, obviously, but that idea of the getting into the head of the investigator is done so well here and so carefully and we get to see again he has a hole in his memory he has these traumatic things that happened to him but he has this lack of memory it's a really well done ballet or a bullfight (laughs) exactly (laughs) yes (laughs) the end of the story uh there's a there's a lot to uh, ha- there's a lot that happens in the in the end when we when we find out the solution to this case and the detectives find out that Rob really was Adam from 20 years previous and it's amazing to me that the author let that go in the story as long as she did I think a group of detectives should be able to do that detection. Where is this kid? Where is Adam? We can find him. Oh, he's been here the whole time. The stereotype of a boss, O'Kelly, who is just the the yelling at people with his sleeves rolled (laughs) up, smoking a cigar boss in this story becomes Rob. Is he Irish? He's he's an Irish cop. Yes. His name, O'Kelly? Yes, uh, O'Kelly, the <laughs> Irish cop. Yes, he is just so a stereotype. <laughs> he becomes Rob's fiercest defender after it comes out that that Rob is Adam, and I just I love how this story ends. But at the same time, this book is the first of four published Dublin Murder Squad books. So it certainly leads us to the next case that comes up with this team. And I find it really fascinating that this feels like a one-off, doesn't it? It does. At the end of this novel, you do not think, oh, I can't wait for the next book of the series. And so many police procedurals are series. That is the standard mode of the police procedural. Because, of course, if you have an amateur detective, like they just happen to, you know, they're, say, for example, oh, my husband is um, is accused of a crime. I will be an amateur detective and clear his name. Like, that's a one-off. But if you're a police officer, a police detective, well, of course, that's your job. You're just solving crimes all the time. It's typical to be serial. This completely feels like a one-off, but mm-hmm. isn't. I think I was shocked when a second book came out and I will just share with you. The second book is not told the narrator. It's a different narrator. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thing to do for a yeah. series to, to make. Very the... unusual. Huh? I am intrigued. Yeah. I need a drink. <laughs> so being a police detective, there's a lot of drinking and smoking in this book. Isn't there? <laughs> This was made into a series on stars, and I I did note the amount of smoking that was occurring with these detectives in that series. There's a lot of uh, default parts to being a detective, and drinking and smoking seem to be on that list. But this was, I really enjoyed this book, Pam. Yay! I'm glad I did too. I'm going to be teaching this in my detective fiction class in the fall, so I'm looking forward to seeing what 18 to 24 year olds can make of it. Different perspective for sure. Mm -hmm. Chip, did you enjoy this book? Chip has been avoiding that question the entire podcast. I've asked it twice and he has been like... (laughs) Um, Yes. Good. For that a- is the most full-throated enthusiasm I've ever heard from you, my friend. <laughs> I enjoyed it's been this. a busy week. It's been a busy week. I get that. I totally get that. I, I have not it. had a busy week. I have had a, a wonderful week of summertime, and this book worked really well, not just with the headlines of what's happening in reality, but also Stranger Things, that idea of those kids in the woods played into my thinking reading this book and I enjoyed the characterizations of this very much and I do recommend those of you who enjoy 
detective fiction. Enjoy kids in peril stories. (laughs) I do recommend it. It's called In the Woods by Tana French, who was published in 2018. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. There's plenty of things happening in the news. Let's talk about almost none of them. <laughs> the news stinks. Don't watch the news. Indie PopCon is coming this weekend in Indianapolis. And we've had a great time there. What is important about that is that they survive the pandemic, Steve. You know, the conventions in general survive the the gatherings and we have had some great times post-pandemic gathering uh the numbers are not looking great right now but i am ready for convention season this one popcon 2022 in indianapolis this weekend tom arnold is going to be there i have a, uh, i would really love to talk to tom arnold about his career and his uh experiences there's two stars from the orville that are going to be there jay lee and scott grimes are going both going to be at popcon along with our friend peter spellos who's there teaching improv we had a great conversation with him and popcon boy was that four years ago now chip boy time time is the fire in which we burn exactly Pam, thank you so much for coming in and and helping us with our detective fiction and our literature. Uh, I appreciate this book club so much. Thank you so much. It's always so great to talk to you guys. And thanks for letting me do a detective novel. That's such a pleasure for me. And it's great to get your perspectives. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think we can. What do you think, Pam? Absolutely. I'll see you guys next month. All right. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is too much scrolling.com. Our email is too much scrolling at gmail.com. We're at Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Pessenfloor. And I'm Pam Bedore. We'll see you in the future. I wanna talk about